0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and
1: NPR. In January of 2020, Bloomberg City Lab published an article about a new study from Pittsburgh researchers naming the best and worst cities for Black women. Among cities with at least 100,000 Black women, Cleveland came in dead last in terms of livability. In this city with a nearly 50 percent Black population, this news drops like a bomb. And reactions were mixed. Do you think Cleveland is really the worst for Black women? And what do you say? Uh, I say...
2: It depends on the person <laughs> they <ask. laughs> When I dropped it in one of my Black girl group chats, the emojis were just eye rolls. I'm not surprised. Not even a little. It's, it's heartbreaking and also embarrassing. Is it like this everywhere? Is it me? <laughs> like... This city will make or break you. We have a city of Black women that are looking around at their outcomes, their future, their past, and saying, this city makes me anxious. If anybody's out there listening in Cleveland, please get out. On Living for We, we talk to Cleveland's Black women
1: from all walks of life, from the CEO of one of our major healthcare systems to self-starting entrepreneurs, judges, lawyers, doctors, artists, students, and mothers who've experienced loss. We share stories from these women as change makers and architects of their own futures, celebrating their victories, challenges, and personal growth along the way. So is it really true what they say? Is Cleveland deserving of the least livable title? And what can we do to make lasting improvements for Black women in our city? I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor, and this is Living For We, a project of connecting the dots between race and health from Ideastream Public Media. Welcome in, everyone. On this episode of Living For We, we're going deep but it's not an unfamiliar place. As black women, what did we always hear our mothers say? They told us we had to work 10 times harder than white people. And when we get to positions of success, we can't afford to miss a step or they'll all get snatched away. A content note though, before we get started today, this episode includes conversations about police violence, including recordings of 911 dispatcher and police communications. What's Cleveland like for black women when they find themselves in the white hot light of controversy and public scrutiny? How do they cope? Sometimes Black women who don't seek the spotlight are thrust into the public eye through some circumstance or tragedy. Like our first guest today, one of the most well-known women from Cleveland, Samaria Rice. The mother of Tamir Rice, who was just 12 years old when he was killed by a police officer while playing with a toy gun in a Cleveland park in 2014. On that day, dispatchers were told that Tamir's toy gun was a real pistol.
3: I'm sitting in the park at West Boulevard by the West Boulevard Rapid Transit Station. He's like pointing at everybody in the park by the Youth Center. There's a black male sitting on the swings. So he
0: keeps pulling a gun out of his tent and pointing it at people.
1: Even after shots were fired, police were still convinced they were dealing with a grown man.
0: Shots fired.
1: Mail down, blackmail, maybe 20. Tamir's murder quickly became national news. Yet another infamous case of police brutality against a black citizen taken to the furthest extreme. We are joined now by Tamir's mother, Samaria Rice. What would you like to see happen
2: right now? I'm looking for a conviction for both of the officers. Mm
3: 200 protesters uh, making a strong message to Cuyahoga County
1: Prosecutor Timothy McGinty that they want action in Tamir Rice's case. And as these things often go, years after tamir's murder after fighting and pushing for prosecution of the officer who shot her son samaria learned that after losing him in such a tragic way the police would go free without being indicted by local or federal authorities Presenting
2: tamir's mother samaria rice says the family found out the case would be closed through reporting from the new york times and the washington post
1: Ms
0: rice feels that it was blatantly disrespectful that she had to learn from the media that the Department of Justice had shut down the investigation.
1: Tamir would be 20 years old now. Samaria says she's surviving and thriving because of her other children. She has a son, two daughters, and four grandchildren. She must be there for them, she says, and because she's fighting for Tamir's legacy.
2: What I experienced was mental abuse that America has allowed to keep happening to black and brown people over the centuries. It's a lot to deal with. You know, uh, America has taken away from me what my son would look like as a teenager and a young man and even an old man. I don't know what my son gonna never look like.
1: Samaria Rice joined me for a conversation about her experiences in the public eye in the city of Cleveland and on the national stage. Samaria, understandably, does not feel that Cleveland is a good place for Black women
2: and Black mothers, especially those raising Black boys. At this point, the system is broken. It's really nothing that I can think about it is that it's white supremacy work, white supremacy at its best. I'm speaking truth and I'm speaking facts. I didn't ask some people to put my son's name on the uh, uh, face over there in Jordan and over there in Saudi Arabia and march down the street. I didn't ask them to do that. There's nothing I can do with that. They have to deal with God with that. That's why I, I can be political. I know I have the power that I have. I don't use it to my advantage. You know, I'm trying to be chill till it's that time. I'm not trying to end up like Malcolm. I ain't trying to end up like Martin. You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to end up like them people. You're not trying to be a martyr. My thing is I'm trying to build up the black woman and the black man to get their mind strong enough that listen, these white people not gonna play with us. OK, look at what's going on. And when you talk about reparations, they can just give us the land and whatever money is there. OK, because they're going to always they got old rich white money. They ain't going to never run out of money. You understand? Take me to the Grand Wizard. I'm going to have a conversation with him and ask him, can he get his white? Wait a minute. Wait seat minute. Seat? Who, who is the Grand Wizard? Who is that? I don't know who it is, <laughs> whoever the one is walking around here with these hats on or whatever he got on and letting the white supremacies ruin the damn world. How about that? Wherever he is, I need to have a conversation with him to <laughs> let him know that. Could you get your white people under control? OK, could you get them under control?
1: At the end of the day, Samaria has experienced immeasurable amounts of trauma. And the trauma of losing a child to a random act of violence, it's all too common in Cleveland. So what would you like other Black mothers who have lost their sons to gun violence, what would you like them to know? Is there anything you could share with them?
2: You can be right there in poverty and you can still come out as a flower. Look at me. Look what happened to me. but it did take something tragic to happen to me but they don't have to wait till the tragic happen they can get with support groups if it's some out there they can check in with their mental wellness making sure that you get the right fit don't get with nobody that think they're going to tell you how to live or how to think. Now they do give you suggestions. You have to be willing to listen and take what you want to take from that. You know what I'm saying? There is professional help out there.
1: Samaria,
2: born and raised
1: in Cleveland, has moved on from the city as a home base. The city of Cleveland eventually agreed to a financial settlement with her family. But Samaria says it doesn't change what happened. And it doesn't make Cleveland any more comfortable for her. But that doesn't mean she's given up on the future of Cleveland for Black women and families. She still has family in Cleveland and the Tamir Rice Foundation and Afrocentric Cultural Center, which she's very proud of, is in Cleveland. But when asked about the study ranking Cleveland as the least livable city for Black women in America, she didn't hold back.
2: If anybody's out there listening in Cleveland, please get out. (laughs) Please, if you can, please get out.
1: You have the advantage of, you know, being away from
2: Cleveland now and
1: looking back, you know, have a broader view. So what, in your estimation, could really make real change for Black women in Cleveland?
2: Well, if Cleveland will stop being a crab in the bucket, number one, and start supporting one another in the way that they should support, stabbing each other in the back, trying to get ahead, trying to not help the next sister up. It's just a shame. And what also makes it so bad as a black woman in Cleveland, there's no stand up man. You know, where are the men at? You're like, guarding us and watching us patrolling our streets and stuff like that, watching our children. Where are y'all? You know, we got some gangs around, you know, they riding around on their dirt bikes. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody does that. There's no real man to teach them. They didn't took the, the mentors off the streets, trying to change the dynamics, put ideas in people's head. When you don't see it, You know, how can you change? How can you think? You know what I'm saying? They don't have a lot of guidance out there and they need more positive guidance to show them more positivity out there. I think if we come together and we stand as one, we may be able to get some results out in Cleveland. It's a lot of families that has experienced gun violence with police and community violence. And we need to help each other out and they need to speak up. You know, a lot of families is not speaking up. They're silent and, and they don't have to be. You don't have to be silent about your child being murdered, period.
1: The Cleveland Police Department has been involved in several high profile use of force incidents over the last decade, including the infamous 137 shots case that led to the deaths of two unarmed motorists, Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams in 2012. Their murders moved state and local officials to ask the U.S. Department of Justice, also known as the DOJ, to launch an investigation into the local police department.
0: Looked at hundreds of cases that included gun-toting rogue officers inflaming routine situations, slanting their after-action reports, or not writing them at all. Attorney General Holder says Cleveland is one of 20 police departments across the country undergoing a Justice Department
2: review. I think we certainly see patterns
1: where you see inadequate training, uh, where you see uh, resource deficiencies, um, where you see uh, cultural problems that exist within police departments. That multi-year investigation was already underway when Tamir was killed. The DOJ's final scathing report was ironically released just 12 days after the fatal shooting of Tamir. It chastised the department for repeated, quote, unreasonable and unnecessary use of force, end quote. Okay, we're about to talk about this thing called a consent decree. And I know it's very confusing. I was confused too when I first moved here to Cleveland and I started hearing about it. And what I eventually figured out is that the consent decree is about the Cleveland Police Department. The fact that they have been involved in so many use of force incidents. So the Department of Justice wanted to make sure that there were changes. So they put a judge in charge to make sure that there's real reform in the Cleveland Police Department. That effort to reform the police started in June 2015, and it's ongoing to this day. The consent decree created a need for a monitoring team to evaluate the police department's positive progress. Our next guest, Aisha Bell Hardaway, is a law professor at Case Western Reserve University Law School and the director of his Social Justice Law Center. She was appointed to the monitoring team in 2015 and then promoted to deputy monitor in 2019. But things took a turn in May of 2021 when Aisha joined a panel on Ideastream Public Media's morning show, The Sound of Ideas, She shared her opinion about the murder conviction of the police officer who killed George Floyd. Aisha Bell Hardaway, would you agree this trial was framed, though, as a case against Derek Chauvin, not a case against police in general?
3: Yes, absolutely. The state's attorneys made that a point, especially in their closing argument, that this is about one man and not about policing generally. This is not an anti-police case. One of the assistant prosecutors mentioned, and that just goes to show how much we don't trust the general American public to have an honest and frank conversation and reckoning with the violence and the harm that continues to be inflicted against Black communities through law enforcement, through what's being called law enforcement in these moments. And that's problematic. That's why I think this case was really just low-hanging fruit. And when we talk about hopefully this is a turning point, I believe, you know, we've heard so many leaders say that, including the president. When folks have made it a point to cabin this case off as an outlier, it really doesn't give me a lot of confidence that uh, we're prepared and willing to, to ensure that, you know, the, the Dante Wrights and the Makia Bryans don't continue to happen.
1: That response, that might sound measured to some, stirred up an unbelievable amount of trouble for Aisha. Cleveland's police monitor at the time, Hassan Aiden, and many other folks involved in the consent decree monitoring process, began to question Aisha's qualifications as a member of the monitoring team. Aiden attempted to move her into a different position, one that would strip her of her monitoring duties. And ultimately, that's what forced her to resign.
3: I think the word that they used was like that wasn't objective. I can't even begin to pretend to understand it. Uh, but I do know, right, that every day I wake and interact in this world, I am seen and I am a black woman. And that can mean something good to some people and it can mean something
1: bad. But Do some... you think it played into that particular set of circumstances that happened? Of all.
3: course. In what way? There were some things about both my background and my racial demographic, my gender right that 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 made folks feel very much like, how dare she how dare she
1: to your point of not being objective and and saying things that revealed that you weren't objective and that must have been hurtful and using it for their own political gain and right. just
3: weird, just weird stuff, you know the way that that happens, yeah, uh, and I you know I had to like really just stay focused on why I was involved in the first place and being, and, and, and the community spoke very, very loudly, you know, um, there wasn't, there wasn't, for me, there wasn't a question um, of what people wanted, even where I was kind of like, I don't have to be there. People, if, if folks really feel like I'm a problem, you know, like, fine, you know, uh, I'll go. But I won't go. I'm not going to just sit here and be relegated to, you know, a, a, a face on your website, you know, or a name that you get to tout when you when you wanna. Yeah, and and community spoke really clearly. So. Yes, they did.
2: ...of the Norman S. Minor Bar Association, Cleveland branches of NAACP and Black Lives Matter are calling for Bell Hardaway to be reinstated immediately.
1: The monitor was not put in place to be a friend of the Cleveland Police Department.
2: Professor Hardaway is the only person that has been a continuous expert relative to the Cleveland Police...
1: There was an immediate and loud community outcry upon the news of Aisha's forced resignation. Without her on the team, there was not a single local Black person responsible for monitoring the police department. And yet through all the chaos, all the backlash, and all of the blatant disrespect, Aisha kept an immaculate demeanor, as many Black women are expected to do. We're human. You know, we could be some petty individuals as human beings. (laughs) And it's hard not to get caught up in our feelings, you yeah. know? So just yeah. even being able to rise above that, I think that's just I think that's incredible, but I think it's also something that black women have had to do in so many spaces, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean,
3: and I you know, listen, I think that's healthy.
1: Michelle Obama when they go low we yeah, go high
3: yeah yeah I don't even think about it that way I mean yes I think that it's important to put those sort of like parameters or, or right make those analogies all of all of that's helpful and crystallizing the point but the reality of this for me is that your opinion and your attempts to move me your your attempts to discredit me don't really get to occupy that space. I'm not giving you that power. It's not necessarily like, oh, I think I'm better than or or, I'm more spiritual than or whatever, right? Like, this
1: just needs to be put in its proper place. And let's just say, sometimes justice has a way of working itself out, even if that's a rare occasion for Black women. Hassan Aiden, the one responsible for pushing Aisha out, was forced to ask her to return to the monitoring team following the community's dismay at her departure. She rejoined, and Hassan has since stepped down as police monitor. And guess who is in his role now? Miss Aisha Bell Hardaway.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think, you know. Some it, the way things work out, I, yeah. I, I, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, life is interesting the way it works it out, can, right? It
3: can be interesting. I still regret that it was a thing that happened at all, especially when we care so much about the work. These sideshows are tough, right? They're distractions. They're opportunities for the work not to be moving forward. And, and I never, ever want to be at the center of
1: anything that's costing us the right progress. That's the thing with both Aisha and Samaria's stories. While obviously not the same, they're both painful public affairs. But each of them found their own way to cope. Samaria through spending time with her family, working to build Tamir's legacy, and Aisha through focusing on the bigger picture of her work and just how important police reform is in the city of Cleveland and to her personally. The need for police reform in Cleveland is dire. And at the same time, community gun violence is also ripping families apart. Aisha shared a story about a case unrelated to her work on the police monitoring team. She worked tirelessly to help a young man charged with domestic violence get out of prison. We worked like the Dickens, got him released, and I got a telephone call that he
3: was shot by the girl and. I will never forget the screams I heard from his mother as I pulled up to Metro and was running from the parking garage into that ER. I will never forget that. And that experience, I was proximate to it, but he wasn't my child, even though I handled the case like I would want somebody to handle the case for my child. That broke something in me for quite some time for quite some time. And uh, I'm working hard to get to recover from it, but losing him felt like something I had never experienced as a lawyer. And, and doing what I could to support his family, his wonderful siblings, um, and of course he has two children, and doing what I could to support them never was enough. You know, never, because nothing is going to be enough. And so, yes, uh, there is a lot of loss that happens. And it's not just the type of loss that Miss Rice, the, the unthinkable loss that Miss Rice has suffered, but nonetheless, it's unthinkable for those who are, you know, experiencing it. And heartbreaking and devastating about so much of what's being taken away from the families that are impacted by this violence from the children who won't get to have their fathers, right, um, or their
1: mothers. I think about, you know, how many Black mothers are walking around in Cleveland with this trauma, you know, living with this trauma, trying to survive with this trauma.
3: They're surviving, but I, I know it's not easy, right? Being in close communication at times with my client's mother, right? I. It is the unthinkable. It is the unthinkable. Um, and having other children that you have to go on for, you know, and also trying to be good to you, you know, and thinking about yourself, too. I mean, it it is it is profoundly devastating.
1: Unsurprisingly, trauma is a word that's going to come up time and time again throughout this season of Living for We. Black women are expected to overachieve, overperform and live their lives gracefully while simultaneously carrying deep trauma, consciously and unconsciously. Through explicit and subtle acts of aggression, and while caring for family, often fractured by violence, disadvantage, years of discrimination, and of course, pre existing generational trauma. Countless Black women's lives are shaped by the adversities they face, and that's why we're calling in the expert. Dr. Angela Neal Barnett will be our resident psychologist throughout this season of Living for We.
0: I am a licensed clinical psychologist and I tend to do group interventions. One of the things that is important to understand is that racism in all of its forms is a stressor and it is a chronic stressor. And what happens then, we have so many of the things that have happened in this country, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, uh, Tatiana Jefferson, Jalen Walker, Tamir Rice. Tamir Rice, absolutely. That those things for us switch racism from a chronic stressor to trauma. And it is that chronic stress plus the traumatic stress leads to toxic stress. So what happens is that the cortisol, which is a stress hormone, protects us. But if you're facing this day in, day out, at some point it becomes depleted. It can no longer protect us. We're just out there vulnerable and just absorbing in that toxic stress. The issue is not race. The issue is racism.
1: One of the themes that we're talking about in today's episode is that sometimes as Black women, we're thrust into the spotlight. Sometimes we're we're not seeking that spotlight, but it's thrust upon us. Yeah. And we spoke with Samaria Rice. It's unimaginable to me the trauma that she has gone through. Yes.
0: And yet she has taken that and made it her life's work
1: to bring about. Change. You know, if you were talking to Samaria, if you were her therapist, or when you have people in the chair that you're talking to who have gone through a major loss like that, is that something that you advise them to do to find another purpose?
0: One of the things that we know in grief counseling is that it is important
1: to find purpose. Unfortunately, In Cleveland, there's many, many Black women dealing with loss. Yes. Who are grieving. They're grieving the loss of a child, maybe not at the hands of the police, but maybe at the hands of someone else from their community. One of the things that
0: we hear all the time, particularly from people who have multiple loss, is that you mean this has a name? Grief, trauma, stress. I just thought, this was the way it was supposed to be. When you can name it, when you can educate, when you can make interventions available, uh that gives people hope. That gives them some hope that there can be something different. There's hope that there's something that there can be something different. Hope is the key to healing.
1: How do you start though to get somebody to that place when they come to you? And maybe it's fresh, or maybe it's been a year or two. Where do you start? So you start by listening. What happened? How are you feeling? When they say,
0: I st- I'm not getting over, uh, 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 you know, this is just, uh, I-, I just can't get over this. Then you don't say things like, oh, well, you should, let me help you. You're saying things like, oh, tell me about it. Where are you getting stuck? What's going on? It's just about Active, what what we call active listening, is which is that you don't talk about yourself, and you don't make a basic idea,
1: and you don't, um, and you don't try to say, well, you know what, I understand what you're going through because I went through something similar. Yeah, and didn't a, talk yeah, about yeah, your story. Yeah,
0: yeah, talk about your story, and that it doesn't help anybody. Rarely have people been able to tell
1: their story from beginning to end, like what. Samaria went through, and she's experiencing this same grief, this same out-of-body experience, but yet there's all this attention. And she's supposed to then somehow
0: get up in front of cameras, because uh, she talks about that. You know, they expect me to get up, and they didn't want me to be angry, because you, know, you know, all these kinds of, of, of things. And so what they were saying is, don't go out there looking like you're a grieving mother. And how can you not? You know, we we have these expectations of, of people. We're gonna be the noble parent, be above this, and talk about hope and healing when we have just lost our baby. If you listen, particularly if you listen to mothers, this grief is always, I mean, it may not be as intense as in your face as it was in the beginning. But it's always there. It's just always there.
1: And I can imagine that as a mother. I have not lost a child in that way. But I have a young Black man that I'm raising. Well, he's almost a grown-up now. He'll be 21 soon. But as a Black mother with a young Black son, there's this angst and anxiety that's always like under the surface. And, you know, he may be going out for just a fun night with his friends. But in the back of my mind, I know all mothers experience this to a certain extent, being worried about your child. But there's this other level. There's a
0: reason why we see those boys, those men, call out for their mamas. And when they do, there's a reason that every Black mother in this country hears her name.
1: Oh, my God. You're so right. You're so right. I mean, I cannot. It's almost too much for me to even listen to them calling for their mother. Because I can hear my son's voice. That's why we say to people, don't watch. Don't watch. We do, unfortunately, get confronted with these things. Over and over again, over on a, on and, a loop. Over.
0: and that's trauma. That, that's trauma. And that's depleting us. That's why we had what people refer to as a racial reckoning with George Floyd, because we didn't know to avoid the, the video. So, you know, there it was in our face. And collectively, as black Americans, we all fell apart or went off. Or both. Uh, (laughs) We did. We really did. That's a good way of describing it. We fell apart. And when people didn't give us a beat, when when people didn't give us a beat, we went off even more. We were like, do you know what happened? No, I'm not sending you that memo. No, I'm not going out there and covering this story. No, I'm not defending your client. And no, I'm not teaching class.
1: So let's talk about our other guest, Aisha Bell Hardaway, another woman who was thrust into the spotlight. Black women don't get second chances. You'll hear
0: us say we have to be twice as good to go half as far. And we don't get second chances. What uh, Aisha did was, was say, I'm going to be transparent and I'm going to say what happened, and I am not, because, because we don't get second chances. People think we'll just run under the bed and hide, you know, or, or we'll go back into academia and, and do whatever it is we were doing. But she realized she had been chosen for a purpose, and she was not going to run and hide. She was going to be transparent And stand up for what she was doing and the
1: importance of what she was doing. Taking back that sense of control. Taking back
0: back the narrative, taking back control. Because in Northeast Ohio, in Cleveland, if we don't write our own narrative, other
1: people will write it for us. We got to stop waiting for other people to pick up the mantle for us.
0: Right, Samaria, Aisha, they stood up. And so I'm not going to let other people control the narrative or uh, this just can't sit here. We have to tell the truth. We have to put our narrative out there if there's going to be any kind of change in the lives of black women. It's so hard, though. It is really hard. You're in the middle
1: of that storm. Oh, absolutely.
0: Nobody wants to do that. Samaria says, you know, if I have to say one thing, it was protecting, to protect us, to protect black women. And often when we, when we're out there like these women have been, it feels like we are unprotected. And that's why that circle Of women who surround us, our faith and those people who are in the background, maybe not in the forefront defending us, but in the background defending
1: us become important. As Aisha talked about how the support from the community, from the black community was fast and it was steadfast. Eventually, others came to support her as well. But the black community came first. Yes. And... One of the other themes that we hear from so many of the guests is having that circle of Black girlfriends. It's so important. Absolutely.
0: Wonderful poem by uh, Gloria Wade Gales called And the Women Gathered. Black women have always gathered around each other. And as long as we continue to do that, I mean, that's what allows you to stand.
1: Before we go, we wanted to share some words from you. Here's one of our listeners who called into our hotline. I am a 27-year-old Black female
2: who currently resides in the city of Cleveland. Cleveland is definitely hustle-driven. It's definitely got to get it out the mud, got to grind to make it. I currently work for a nonprofit organization which is funded by the state of Ohio. And my director, who I report to, his main goal and vision is to see Cleveland be the next Atlanta. We have the potential. We have the business owners. We have the entrepreneurs. We have the creatives. We have the tenacity to become a black hub for for everything, medicine, entrepreneurship. Um, And I really want to see that happen. And so I told myself, being 27, no kids and just a wealth of information and knowledge. I told myself that I'm not going to leave Cleveland. I'm going to stay here and make it my mission and my goal to to see Cleveland on top.
1: If you're a Black woman in Cleveland and want to share your thoughts with us directly, our hotline is open. Leave a voicemail at 216-223-8312. That's 216-223-8312. And you may just hear yourself on the podcast. On our next episode, we get to work, literally. We begin our exploration into Black women's experiences in the workforce in Cleveland, often as the only one of us in the room. The moment that
2: you decide you want to speak out, you're combative, you're difficult, you're hard to work with, you're angry, you're emotional. This may not be the line of work for you. And I wonder, like, anyone else walking down the street, dressed nice, would they say to them, what do you do?
3: No matter what letters you have behind your name, your education, people will still look at you as just a little Black girl.
1: That's next time on Living for We. joining us you'll find more episodes of living for we on evergreenpodcast.com ideastream.org or wherever you get your podcasts leave us a review on apple Podcasts, letting us know what you think about cleveland and what you're interested in hearing us talk about on the show living for we is part of the connecting the dots between race and health initiative from IdeaStream stream public media Produced by Evergreen Podcast and made possible by generous support from the Dr. Donald J. Goodman and Ruth Weber Goodman Philanthropic Fund of the Cleveland Foundation. The Living for We team includes myself, Marlene Harris-Taylor, host and executive producer, Hannah Ray Leach as our lead producer and Hey Fran Hay as producer and creative director. Chichi and Kemra and Bethany Studenik of Enlightened Solutions are our researchers, data analysts, and community partners. We get production help from Stephanie Czekielinski. Original music, including our theme song, is by Cleveland artist Afi Scruggs. Our mix engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. We'll see you soon.